Welcome to PSQH the Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Dr. Barry Chaikin, Clinical Lead for Tableau, about how information technology can help solve healthcare's biggest problems. And now, on to the interview. Hi, this is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. I'm joined today by Dr. Barry Chaikin, author of the new book, Navigating the Code, Using Revolutionary Technology to Transform the Patient-Physician Journey. Welcome, Barry. Thanks so much, Jay, for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Um, and I know who you are, but people out there may not. So why don't you uh, give us a little bit of background about you and, and sort of how you came about to write this book. Hey, will do. Uh, my background's in general preventive medicine and public health, where I'm board certified in. I spent some time at the CDC as an EIS officer. They sometimes call them medical detectives. And in the last year and a half, you Many states saw them running around trying to collect samples and understand what was going around with the pandemic. Those are the people who chase down things like Ebola, and um, they even work on some injury prevention for uh, workplace. So it's a broad group. I worked in the area of, a, of infectious disease and, and chronic disease stationed at the health department in the state of New Jersey. My background um, has been in the area of health information technology for my entire career. I did some work in patient safety and quality for a period of time. And um, I've always thought that if we can take information technology and apply it appropriately at the point of care or the point of decision making, we can make a real impact on how people are able to access care, the quality of the care, the safety of the care, and we can do it by managing the costs that are necessary to deliver the care. How did I get to thinking about writing this book? Well, I've worked for a variety of software companies over my lifetime, as well as did consulting in this particular area. And what I wanted to do is do something really different. I didn't want to write another Me Too book complaining about the US healthcare system. I wanted to give people, in a sense, a roadmap on how they can use information technology to improve safety, to improve quality, to improve outcomes, to do the processes that they're working on, do them better, to make the workflows, whether clinical or administrative, be better, and to take the existing systems, whether it's the EHR, ERP, or the CRM programs, as well as other operational systems in organizations, take that data and apply it in a way that enhances and makes better the way we deliver care. So the book takes a lot of the principles from safety and quality, everything from the Hippocratic Oath to Deming and Duran and Berwick and a variety of others and applies it with a technology spin to, like I said, be a roadmap for how people can use, use technology, information technology in particular, to deliver better care. And one more thing, I made a point of writing the book that included two very important factors to me. One is I wanted to make the book something that would be easy for people to read. It's not a textbook. It's not something where you have to take notes. I was thinking about if my book comes out in the summer and somebody wants to read a nonfiction book on the beach, <laughs> I wanted to write the book so people could actually do that. I also included 18 interviews from people from all around the world covering information technology, patient safety, and quality because I wanted the book to mean, be useful for not only for us in the United States, but for people around the world. And I actually don't use the word cost very much in the book. I use the word investment 
responsible, meaning that whether it's a budget, whether it's a single payer system, or whether it's a group health system and private pay like it is in the US, all of the principles could be useful to people who read the book and try to apply them. Excellent. Um, you mentioned you, you did a, a bunch of interviews. Who were uh, some of the people that you talked to for the book? Well, first off, it was amazing the types of people who just said, yeah, sure, Barry, I'll go ahead and speak to you about the book. Um, I interviewed Joe Restucher from Boston University, who I've known for many, many years, who's done really yeoman work in the area of managed care research. I interviewed John Glasser, who is here for us in Boston and really for people around the country, has been a um, is an icon of the work he's done in health information technology and how he's helped others. I interviewed um, Don Rucker, the former head of the Office of the National Coordinator, David Shulkin, former VA secretary under the previous administrations, um, who I've known for many, many years and watched the, a lot of the great work that he's done, first out of Philadelphia and then clearly in New York and then eventually at the federal government's level. I interviewed um, Paul Barish, who is an incredibly well-known patient safety expert who um, speaks from all around the world. I interviewed people from Pakistan, Australia, New Zealand, not New Zealand, excuse me, Singapore, as well as Brazil. And in fact, I interviewed one, the woman from Brazil became a physician back in the 1970s and once was one of the first females ever to get involved in health information technology hmm. in her country. So she also, I was, I was thrilled to be able to spend time with her. Excellent. Um, so you talk about revolutionary healthcare information technology and how it can solve, um, you know, the big problems in healthcare. How, how does it, how does that work? Well, let's put it this way. It's not like you buy software, you put it on the shelf and your project management is solved. It isn't right. anything like that. What I'm suggesting is, is that we've, over the last several years, particularly the last 10 years with the expansion of the use of the HR, have implemented these digital systems to do the work that we used to do on paper. And those systems collect data just naturally. They collect them in logs, they collect them in data sets. That data can be used to do what we are actually doing, do it better, but if you take the time to analyze that data whether it's addressing issues around physician burnout, whether it's analyzing processes to see if they're efficient and effective, linking outcomes to the different processes or even to the workflows. We all are trying to learn how can we do what we do better. And the only way to do that is to collect data, analyze it, understand it, apply it, and test it again to make sure that what you expected as a result is actually what you're getting. There's that old maxim that says, you can't manage what you don't measure. We have these tools today. We should use them, measure, and then change as needed to continually improve outcomes. Is the problem that we're just not, we've got the data, but we're not putting it to good use right now? Um, that's a great question. I think there's a lot more data that we could use to improve what we do in the healthcare space that we're not using. Let me give you a non-healthcare example. All of us have purchased something from Amazon. Amazon knows not just what you purchased, they know when you purchased it, how you purchased it, how it might be related to other things you purchased, what type of device you purchased it on, where were you located, 
when you actually purchase that. And they use that data to better understand your buying habits, and they will go ahead and change the way they interact with you digitally to make it easy for you to buy products from them. They do this in, in retail stores. They do this everywhere, but we don't do it well in healthcare. The data gets collected, but we don't actually apply it in the optimum way that we could. For example, there's a lot of data available about census tracts and social determinants of health, yet there aren't many provider organizations that are using this SDOH data that's readily available incorporating into their population health uh, um, projects. And we need to start thinking about using data, all that's available to us in an intelligent way. And the last thing, it's not about describing what we've done. It's about can we inform the decision-making at the person who's making choices? Can we inform them so that decisions that they make are better ones? And do you see um, you know, these ideas, do you see the industry being receptive to ideas like these, or is it going to take a little nudging uh, to, get, to get people to really make change like the, like the change you're looking for? There's an old saying, another old saying that says, if you've seen one provider organization, you've seen one provider organization. Uh, I've worked with some organizations, my current position at Tableau as clinical lead, where people are embracing the use of analytics and using it throughout their organization. And there are other organizations I work with who probably have the same resources available. They could make that investment we're really just starting on their analytics journey. So it's really all over the board. But the reality is, is unless these organizations embrace analytics and embrace the idea that they're gonna constantly need to change processes and workflows that are informed by their analytics, unless they embrace that idea, they're gonna fall behind. Um, and I have many examples of, of how analytics can be quite useful in the particular setting. Um, and I imagine there are, you know, you're not the only voice out there calling for this. I mean, there, there are plenty of people who, you know, are advocating for, you know, increased you know, data analysis. Uh, is there resistance right now? Or do you feel like the, you know, the industry is starting to kind of, you know, accept this and it's slowly, you know, kind of turning towards, you know, analytics. I think the, Marketplace is slowly turning to using analytics more effectively. Um, just two weeks ago, I was at a conference of CMIOs, American and the AMDIS conference um, out in California. First on-site conference I've been to uh, since what, last February, 2020. So, but anyway, the thing that was interesting is if we go back 10 years, 12 years, all of the titles of all the people in the room didn't exist. <laughs> there were no informatics training programs and certification programs. Now they've proliferated all over the country. Matter of fact, probably all over the world. You're seeing a lot more of chief analytics officer, chief data officer. So organizations are understanding the importance of having these type of people in their organization. And I think this Quick anecdote will give you an idea and give the audience an idea of, of what's happening in the marketplace. I was talking to a colleague of mine um, in New York City, works for a large provider organization as the chief analytics officer. And he said last March, 2020, they spun up 
three years of analytics in three weeks. Wow. And that's because the need was so great on so many levels, and I won't go into those details because I'm sure the audience can figure out what they are, was so great that they were able to do that. And people came together, the silos broke down, the people came together and figured out what do we need on analytics? How are we gonna apply it? How are we gonna distribute it? And how are we gonna use it? I mean, obviously the pandemic forced us to really look at things differently. Do you feel that it, it helped sort of, you know, in this effort? I mean, I, I know it certainly helped in terms of you know, the use of technology to, you know, deliver care and to, you know, reach out to patients who couldn't come to your facility. Um, do you feel that, you know, it sort of made, uh, you know, th the decision makers in healthcare are more receptive to data analysis since they had to be? Uh, a famous economist once said, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Yeah. None of us can argue with the fact that the last 15, 16 months have been anything but a crisis. They have, it's been terrible for so many of us. Horrific for, some other, for, for a number of us. I think that the senior management, the strategic people in organizations, the leadership has realized, oh my goodness, we have this data. We can do unbelievable things with the data during the crisis. We did. Let's go ahead and figure out how can we do unbelievable things when we're not in a crisis anymore. A great example of this is capacity management is very important to provide organizations, right? They have a fixed amount of facilities, they have a fixed amount of equipment, and in reality, although it's a little bit fungible, they have a fixed staff. So they can just be able to treat so many patients with that fixed staff. Now, wouldn't it be great if you were able to understand how you are using those, those facilities, those fixed assets, the people and the equipment, and optimize their uses to optimize the revenue associated with that investment. Capacity management is all about that. Now, how did that grow? Well, during the pandemic, when you had patients coming into ED, you knew, uh, at least by the fall, you had a good idea about what percentage of those patients would eventually end up in an ICU bed. At the same time, you had all of these other patients who did not have COVID, who may need an ICU bed because they wanted some elective surgery. Somebody's in tremendous pain from a hip or a knee or other types of things. It's elective surgery in a sense, but the people needed the surgery. And then to be frank, I mean, the organizations wanted to get some revenue. They didn't want to have empty beds. They didn't want to have empty OR suites. The physicians needed, particularly the surgeons needed some, some work to do. So what they were able to do is they were able to use risk adjustment methodologies apply it to the COVID patients who are coming to the ED and make a prediction about how many would actually need an ICU bed, right? And then they got put in, built in some slack, but more importantly, they use risk adjustment methodologies to apply to the elective surgeries. And that what they did is they case mixed the elective surgeries so they would flex based upon the demand for ICU beds in coming from the ED. So for every hip replacement surgery, I don't know what the, the numbers are, but so one percentage, a certain percentage will need an ICU bed, most don't, okay? They would use that risk adjustment methodology to go ahead and make those predictions. And then they would do certain types of elective surgery based upon the need availability of non-COVID ICU beds. What are they gonna do going forward? Well, let's make believe COVID goes away. We're going to go and do the same thing. We're going to do some risk adjustment 
methodology applied to those elective surgeries to optimize the use of the OR suite, the ICU beds, and staffing. And that's starting to happen. Great. Um, you know, one theme of, of the book that you talk about is change management. Um, how does change management work into this and, and how, you know, how do you kind of push that along in, in conjunction with RHIT? Sure. First off, um, we all know that getting human beings to change behavior is a really tough task. <laughs> they say, I'm not sure this is so true, but IOM reportedly said that when there's a new discovery in medicine, it takes 17 years for all the doctors to learn that new discovery. I don't necessarily think that's true, <laughs> but that's an extreme. So change management is hard. And in reality, it's what nature has embedded in all of us to actually keep us safe. That's why we don't like to change. We're comfortable with a safe space and change implies an unsafe space. It served us well for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. So what can RHIT do to address the issue of change management? Well, let's think of it this way. Let's assume that everyone who makes a decision in a hospital receives an analytics dashboard that guides their decision-making for the day, either with it's for a patient or the work that they're doing. And I'll give some examples of this in a little bit on how it can apply to non-clinical people. Um, the dashboard or the information provided in that analytics dashboard, which would be part of the clinical workflow in an electronic health record, will could say, for example, include data that's related to evidence-based medicine. You need to check a, check a hemoglobin A1C, you need to check a lipid panel, those types of things. Let's assume that we, uh, over time, let me back up a minute, over time, you as the clinician, doctor, nurse, whoever, is utilizing that dashboard to kind of keep them on track to, to run your day and what you need to do with the different patients. Let's assume we discover something new. We can embed that new thing. Let's say it's a new lab value that we have to check on diabetic patients. We do two things. We do some in-service training and we embed that me new metric in the dashboard. Well, now, since the clinician has been following that dashboard and knows that it's important and knows that it's evidence-based, then it's much easier for them to go ahead and follow up on that metric. So in a sense, we're not asking them to change their behavior. Their behavior is the same. They're using that dashboard or that analytics or the, even the workflow that you've established as being a constant. And the change is the things that they're doing based upon that constant. And that's how you can be able to do change management where the people feel that there isn't any change because I'm doing things the way um, I've always done them, which is using that dashboard as informing my decision making. So they don't feel like they're being pushed. They don't feel like they're being pushed. Yeah. Correct. Um, and one other thing with that, hmm? as we use the analytics, we can have a better understanding of what their workflow is like. So instead of forcing them into this box that's inefficient for them, what we're able to do is we're able to understand the more efficient way is to do it this way. And we can do two things. We can either train them on how to do it more efficiently or, or we can say, wait a minute, we need to change how we've implemented it, deployed it to make it easier to use. And how do we know that? 
because we can watch what how people are using the system looking at these various logs. Um, great. And talk a little bit about the use of RHIT and how it affects the Hippocratic Oath, which you, you had mentioned earlier. Well, the point of the Hippocratic Oath is to do no harm. Now, I took a little bit of poetic license and I took Hippocratic to relate it to medicine and doing no harm. And code, um, meaning computer, computer code, meaning genetic code, those types of things. And I wanted to make the bridge from what the origin of medicine through the evolution to now where we are using digital systems. And I wanted to always suggest to people that whatever they do in using these systems, it's tied back to that doing no harm and provide doing best practices. And that's why I talked about things like change management. And I talked about things like workflows and, and clinical workflows, administrative workflows and such. And that brings me to a, a, a quick um, example for you that I referred to earlier. Let's take um, an organization that's interested in monitoring and minimizing their surgical wound infections. Now, all of us would think, okay, if we're gonna look at some analytics dashboard on that, one thing we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the surgical wounds by, by person, by type of surgery, we're gonna distribute it to the head of surgery, to the operating physicians, we're gonna maybe send it to the nurses, infectious disease, that all makes a lot of sense. But I'm gonna suggest to you and your audience, why aren't we distributing some piece of that dashboard to environmental services? Aren't they the people who clean the room? Aren't they the people who clean the instruments? Aren't the people who uh, stock the supplies? All of those things? Now, I understand. I can't explain to you what they might be doing that would lead to an increase or a decrease in surgical wound infections. And I suspect most most infectious disease specialists and nosocomial infection uh, directors in, in a hospital probably couldn't either. But I bet you that the people who clean the rooms have an idea that maybe there's something they're doing. I don't know if it's gonna happen or not. So let's assume it's not something that impacts the care or impacts surgical wound infections. The ability to make as part of their dashboard, whether it's monitoring how well they, how quickly they clean a room, a turnover room, and all that, and you put the surgical wound infection there, it's something they'll monitor. They now become part of the care team in their mind, even more than they thought so before. And I think that does a lot of things to one act as a surveillance tool in case something changed. If there's a spike, they can say, hey, was it because we stopped our cleaning, we cut down our staff, whatever it may be, or, we, or one of our machines is broken that sterilizes equipment. They're just as important as everyone else in that chain. And the, debt, the analytics that is delivered to each of those different people are go, is going to be different based upon their responsibilities and their roles. But I think that's really important. And one last thing, I was watching the Netflix documentary, Lenox Hill, and I talk a little bit about this in my book. The last episode they scheduled as kind of an additional episode when COVID hit in New York. And they followed the assistant head of neurosurgery. Um, and they have one scene with him 
He's now working in the ED because it was an all hands on deck type of situation. So he's working on, in the ED and he's walks past a room that has a red X on it, meaning the room had been contaminated with COVID or had a patient had been treated with COVID. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, I'm going to be back here tomorrow and I'm relying on those people to clean that room really well. And what that means is that everybody who works in a hospital, the doctors, the nurses, the administrative, the environmental services people, the people who handle supplies, they're all part of that story. They're all part of that team that delivers patient care. And when I look at them, I look at them all as caregivers. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, the book is is talking about sort of, you know, the I think, as you put it, the marriage of healthcare economics and interoperability, which would create a connected, adaptive healthcare organization. How far away are we from that? Is this going to be, is this like decades or do you feel like it's a quicker change than that? It's really hard to know. But in some markets, in some organizations, they are moving to that more integrated model through risk contracting and such. In other places, in other markets, that's not the case. So it really depends where you are, what market you are, how sophisticated or advanced the organization is, what the competition is in that particular market and such. But all of these markets and all of the ways we provide care are changing so much. There's the term providers where, you know, payers and a, uh, provider are all together in one mishmash, similar to, I guess, uh, Kaiser or Geisinger type of a model. Um, I doubt we're ever going to get to a single payer system anytime soon. That's not going to happen. But clearly with the risk contracting that's being taken on by provider organizations, this hybrid is going to kind of float around through the um, throughout the country. All right. Um... And, you know, I feel like you're optimistic that this is, you know, that we're moving in this direction. You know, it seems like there's a lot of strong forces that are kind of leading leading the way. Absolutely. Um, I'm up here in Boston and everyone pretty knows Boston is a very strong medical community. So if I think back of what my training was like and what my care is like today, it is like night and day. Um, there's so much more consumerism. There's so much more patient support and outreach. Um, the technology, if you're able to embrace it for the patient, whether it's patient portals or physician portals on the other side and, and telemedicine and, um, and instructional videos that you get um, five days before your surgery and four days before your surgery and three days before your surgery and kind of tell you what to do. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And all of those things impact outcomes and all of those things involve the actual patient. Uh, it's, um, it's been so transformative in the last several decades. And I imagine that it's going to continue to transform. And I'm not suggesting that the entire country is like this. You know, Boston might be a special pocket, maybe San Francisco, LA, what have you. I don't really know those communities. I just really know well this one. And I'm sure there's there are other communities that have this type of support. 
but it's changing and I think it's changing for the better. So I'm very optimistic. American healthcare is really very good. The problem is the access to it. Yeah. And if we can solve the access, and we are to some degree through the Affordable Care Act and an expansion of, of Medicaid to, uh, to folks who normally wouldn't have it uh, and subsidizing um, uh, premiums, that's really been a great impact. Um, in the last year, 10 million more people joined the Medicaid rolls due to Medicaid expansion, which has been fantastic. Less and less people have no insurance at all. And over time, we'll go, be able to see how information technology will be rolled out, not only to the major urban centers, but, but beyond. And the last thing, as we expand the use of broadband in rural areas, the impact it will have on the health of those people in those areas will be tremendous. Because for those of us who live in a city, we take advantage of the fact that we can have a 30 megabit, 50 megabit, even a one gigabit uh, internet connection. That doesn't exist in a large swaths of our country. Um, but we've there are bills in Congress, hopefully will be passed soon, that are working to expand that. And that'll open up health, improved health care for people in rural areas, which I think is just as important as when we wired rural areas in the 1930s with electricity. Well, if you're optimistic, I'm optimistic. Um, Dr. Shakin, thank you so much for joining me today. The book is called Navigating the Code. Uh, came out June 8th, and you can get it at navigatingthecode.com. Navigating uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And that wraps up episode 32 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.